Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com slash build. That's Chime.com slash build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. Why did you end up doing this story? Like, where did this idea come from? Well, do you know my colleague Heather Long? Of course you know Heather Long. (laughs) I do Uh, know Heather Long. (laughs) Yeah. This is Andrew Van Dam, an economic data reporter for The Post. So she was like, hey, Andrew, I just talked to a lady who said she was taking Social Security early because of the pandemic. Hmm. And I was like, well, that's interesting. That could be a big story. So... I checked with the Social Security Administration. They pointed me to a wonderful data set that I had never seen before. A lot of the researchers I talked to hadn't seen before, but it was showing that no, people were not taking Social Security early. In fact, there were fewer people taking Social Security than we'd expect. It was the exact opposite. And for Andrew, that opposite says something major about the state of the U.S. economy. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, November 11th. Today on the show, a weird economic paradox. Plus, later in the show, we continue our Teens in America series with a story about how racism is handled in schools and what kids are learning about race in America. So during the course of the pandemic, the amount of retirees in America grew by 3 million people, which is almost double the number that was forecasted. In many cases, these people are retiring earlier than we would expect them to. According to Andrew, that is partially because there have been more incentives than ever for people to retire early, especially if they can afford it. Well, of course, there's the global pandemic going on, which has disproportionately affected people of retirement age and maybe encouraging them to avoid their workplace. But just as importantly, there are a bunch of factors that are making it easier for people to make the decision to forego that income, to leave their uh, job. And uh, those include stimulus checks, which, you know, went out to almost all Americans and obviously helped some people pay off debt improve their financial situation, and maybe even start a little nest egg. Second, we had soaring stock markets. Depending on when you invested and how, say you went into the pandemic with a nest egg of about $700,000, there's a chance that by now you are a millionaire. So that's looking a lot better in just 18, 20 months. That's taking you from someone who might have struggled to make ends meet in retirement to someone for whom the math works out fairly well. And then there is home prices. Everyone knows that home prices have soared in the past 18, 20 months. And so people who had equity in their homes, people who are nearing retirement age tend to have you know their mortgages paid off or close to it are suddenly looking at, on paper at least, a much better financial situation, and they may be able to take some of that equity out and retire early. And then some people, finally, may be retiring early because they were able to, if they were laid off early in the pandemic, collect some generous unemployment benefits. And if they have found for them personally, unemployment prospects are not good, 
the labor market is a bit of a dangerous place and that there is still a global pandemic on, they may choose just to step away. But you were saying that even though more people are retiring, they're not actually taking advantage of Social Security benefits. Right. And that is the crazy part. That's the thing that took quite a while to explain. And we still might not know the ultimate explanation. But uh, the biggest factor seems to be that wealth effect we were talking about, that people are seeing their portfolios perform enormously well. And so uh, several people like described to me almost the exact same situation. At the beginning of this year, you sit down with your financial advisor, you start running the numbers, and you think, wait a minute. I might be able to do this. I might not mm-hmm. have to go back to work when the office reopens. I might not have to do that commute ever again in my life. Mm-hmm. And that gets to be real tempting. So for these people who are saying, look, now is the time for me to retire, but I'm actually not going to try to get my Social Security benefits yet. What is the what is the appeal of holding off on that and not tapping into this money that you know these people have paid into over the course of their life through taxes that all of a sudden they're saying, I actually don't need that? This is a really complicated math problem, but the appeal of it is actually quite simple. And that is for every year that you delay Social Security, your payment for when you finally do take Social Security grows by 8 or 9%. And so you're guaranteeing yourself a larger check in the future by denying yourself the benefits right now. So Mm -hmm. these people are saying, I can retire, I can make ends meet off my investments and my stimulus funds and maybe my UI checks. And if I push that off a while, I can guarantee a higher payment later on. And that will last for the rest of my life, which is very tempting, of course. And very smart if that's an option that's open to you. I I feel like the important caveat here is that a lot of people who are in the position of being close to retirement age can't actually decide to just forego their Social Security because they don't have that kind of money just sitting around. But for the people who can do it, I mean, it is it does seem like this interesting new option that, oh, all of a sudden there's money from other places. The the expectations for what this moment in their life was going to look like have changed and that they can have this surprise early retirement. Hey, can we talk about those expectations real quick? Because there's something else that's really interesting about the pandemic being sort of the moment for retirement. And that is the expense side of things. Hmm. Like when people are doing the math here, they realized, wait a minute, I can get by on way lower expenses than I might have thought two years ago because I'm looking at my budget now. I'm not going out. I'm not doing international travel. Hmm. I'm not, you know, commuting. I'm not buying work clothes. Maybe more Zoom weddings and fewer in-person weddings. (laughs) Exactly. And so my expenses are just a tiny fraction of what I thought they might be. And so I realized that maybe we can make this work on both ends. I can I can cut back. I can t- continue living this pandemic lifestyle of, you know, road trips and Zoom weddings. And we can get this retirement done and I can uh, stay out of the office. So hearing the stories of these people that you've interviewed is kind of interesting because I do feel like it goes back to this thing that we heard early on in the pandemic about the stimulus checks, right? That like stimulus checks, unemployment benefits, like these things are not just helping people get through hard times, but they're helping people 
not have to work. And in some ways, I think that is a a message that Democrats like don't want to talk about openly, that like some people are saying, like, look, I don't need to work right now. And that's great. So I'm curious, like what the government had to say about people who apparently are deciding like all these extra checks for extra stuff is helping me retire early and also not even use Social Security. Yeah. The Social Security Administration's Office of the Chief Actuary, their number cruncher in chief, actually told us that extended unemployment payments and pandemic relief payments have contributed to lower benefit applications. So stimulus checks and unemployment benefits, the generous government benefits during the pandemic probably caused people to retire early and not take Social Security. Hmm. I guess just them saying that pretty openly is kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, It's one of the very vanishingly few instances of the government sort of hinting officially that stimulus checks that generous government benefits may have had an effect on the labor market. So can you tell me a little bit about some of the people that you talked to for this story and what they had to say about what this moment is like for them? Yeah. One of the most hilarious and interesting was a 62-year-old woman in North Carolina named Cheryl Miller. So as COVID was going on and people were making decisions about their lives and quality of lives, um, I decided to try and make this a real possibility. Um, Over the past couple of years, investments The value of investments have increased tremendously. Uh, My home value has increased. My expenses went down because I was working remotely and not able to travel, not able to spend too much money. So all those factors really helped with that decision. And so I'll be retiring in uh, early 2022 and delaying, you know, collecting until I'm almost 67. So Cheryl was just a little bit burned out at work, let's say. And so when she realized that her retirement accounts were doing surprisingly well, it occurred to her that she didn't actually have to keep coming to work. And that opened up a whole new set of possibilities for her. I've been independent, living on my own since I was 16 years old and working full time, put myself through college, nights and weekends. And so, you know, I had a long time on a long work career. And, you know, I thought it was uh, good to try and retire early because I started working early. And so, you know, after looking at those projections and deciding to really reduce my expenses, you know, not buying a new car for a while, staying in my affordable home, you know, those kinds of decisions came into play. And then COVID just pushed me over the edge. And I said, this is the time to do it. So I hear a lot about Social Security benefits and how that big pot of money is running out and that someday there's just not going to be enough Social Security for all Americans who qualify for them. And that, to me, makes it seem risky for these people to just say, look, I am going to get more money later by not taking in this money now. I mean, is that part of the conversation about whether there is a risk here for these older Americans to just not take this money now? And how does that affect the overall pot of money that we're all banking on getting when we retire? That is an incredibly difficult question to answer. (laughs) There are so many moving parts right now during the pandemic that might affect when the Social Security Trust Fund will or will not run out of money. But In general, the folks I talked to said, you know what, I am not worried about my own social security checks. I paid into the system. It isn't going to run out by the time my ticket's up, by the time I choose to cash that check. Hmm. So there was not a lot of worry among the retirees. 
And among the system, I can't really speak to how it's going to affect when the Social Security Trust Fund runs out. But in general, people delaying Social Security should tend to help their balance sheet. Um, As you can imagine, Social Security has an incentive in all this. And so they're trying to incentivize behavior like delaying Social Security Mm -hmm. that helps them in the long run, that helps their actuarial balance sheet. And so, yeah, this might be one of those moves. Interesting. I I wonder if there are other risks here, too, because you talked about stimulus checks that were just a few time kind of thing. Unemployment benefits have decreased in a lot of places. Um, What happens if this money that people are banking on is not coming in the way that they anticipated? I mean, is there a world where some of these people who were so thrilled about early retirement actually run out of money earlier than they anticipated and they have to think about going back into the workforce? Absolutely. Now, I wouldn't worry about any of the folks I profiled in this story because delaying Social Security is not a permanent decision. If cash starts to run out, they can say, wait, Uh, they can walk over to their local Social Security office or more accurately go online or call them on the phone and start taking checks almost immediately. So they can reverse this decision with very little effort, they can start getting Social Security checks. They might be smaller checks than they had budgeted for previously, but they will be, you know, substantial, your st- standard substantial Social Security monthly check. But economists do worry that a lot of the people who retired right now are really kind of a temporary reti- retirement. They are retiring with kind of quotes around it because they got laid off, uh, their job shut down, they're afraid of the virus, something like that. And economists Mm -hmm. do wonder if those people, once the virus is tamped down and once stimulus checks dry out, will start finding their way back to the workforce. What do you think these trends say about the state of the U.S. labor market? They say that this is a mighty tight labor market, that people have other options. Usually, that other option is something like quitting to go work for the people across town. But now, for people at least older than age 62, that option is they can go take Social Security or they can retire, not take Social Security, and see their benefits checks rise later on down the line. One of the biggest labor market trends of the past decade or two is people working later. Is labor force participation rising in 55 plus, in 65 plus? More and more workers. And that helps you know, the U.S. economy. That helps uh, drive growth. But um, that group took a big hit during the pandemic, and uh, we are not sure if they're going to come back or not. So it's kind of interesting that your reporting process started with one person who was taking their Social Security benefits early because they were worried about having enough money to live on. And then in the process of reporting about people retiring early, you're finding all these other people who are basically living their best life and like cashing in on all these other things and not even having to take Social Security at all. What do you think that says about the state of the economy right now? It's uh, a ton. It's Geez, what a good question. Okay, so (laughs) uh, after the Great Recession, we saw the opposite trend. A ton of people started taking Social Security early because they were under enormous economic hardship. They were struggling to make ends meet. But this time around, we saw the complete opposite. People got stimulus checks. They got unemployment insurance. They got 
they saw their assets appreciate because the Federal Reserve and the government intervened to prop up markets as well. And because of all of these things, all of which are tied to the government's rapid and overwhelming response to the economic COVID crisis, retirees are actually finding themselves looking pretty good. Whereas in the Great Recession, where we did not have uh, a federal response at nearly the same scale for nearly, uh, that covered nearly as much of the economy, uh, we saw people leaning on Social Security as a kind of economic safety net. Andrew Van Dam is an economic data reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Lena Muhammad and mixed by Ted Muldoon and Sean Carter. After the break, we continue our Teens in America series with a conversation about how racism is handled in schools and what one student decided to do about it. We'll be right back. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zoe Jenkins is an 18-year-old college freshman in Virginia, and she has always been a high achiever. Growing up in Kentucky, she was a straight-A student, a state debate champ, she was in gifted programs, but some of her classmates didn't think that she belonged there. I remember my first day in a gifted program in middle school, this student asked me, do you know where you are? You know, this is a gifted program, right? And I was like, yes, I do. It took me a while until later to realize, like, that's not a question that student asked to anybody else in that classroom. And that was because I was the only Black student in that classroom. Despite what Zoe had learned about real-life racism from moments like these, even up through high school, she wasn't actually getting much formal education about race. Their way of talking to us about racism our freshman year was like, we read To Kill a Mockingbird. And I was like, okay, great. Now we understand racism. We talked about how, like, you shouldn't say the N-word. Apparently, that's all we need. So during her senior year of high school, she decided to take matters into her own hands. 17-year-old Kentuckian Zoe Jenkins saw vital lessons missing from her education. So she wrote her own curriculum to teach students about diversity, equity, and anti-racism. We've been talking with young journalists about race and identity in our series with YR Media. Today, what Zoe did when real talk about racism was missing from her classes. Can I ask more generally about your experiences in school? Like, what kind of schools did you go to? And what were your memories of of what it was like being a student in those schools? I think I just had to go through a lot of classroom experiences where I learned to understand that some of my teachers and some of my classmates just did not expect as much out of me. 
the comments, I think, got worse and kind of a bit more egregious in high school. So I had a teacher who called me a coconut, meaning that I was brown on the outside and white on the inside. Oh, my God. Um, and, you know, in a classroom of your peers, you, I think, just actively try to laugh it off. Like, oh, ha ha, that wasn't really funny, but we'll laugh and pretend that that's okay and move on. Um, it's a lot about like how you react to it in the moment, which is not the way it should be, but it's like a self-preservation of like, do I want to stir up drama and have people talking about this or do I want to try and totally let it slide? Yeah. Yeah. It's a hard thing to try to figure out how to navigate. And so you've been talking to friends of yours or classmates about their experiences with this, right? Yes. I'll say one person I've been talking a lot with in particular is my friend Skylar. She's in the grade below me. And we both played high school soccer together. So that's primarily how we know each other. And we started swapping stories because I assumed like, oh, I was like, I'll tell Skylar these stories. I'll warn her about what she could possibly experience. And then much to my chagrin, learned that she had already been through a lot of it. She's biracial, so she's Black and she's Asian American. And so especially dealing with, you know, Stop Asian Hate, but also Black Lives Matter over the last year. The incident in particular that she told me about was just really, I think, to a lot of misunderstanding around what affirmative action is. So we're all there. We're in our libraries. Everything's going great. We're talking about Grey's Anatomy. And I'm like, maybe I want to go to med school. And then I get a like comment from a kid that I'm in a lab group with. And he goes, oh, you'd only get in because you're Black. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, when they look at that type of thing, they don't really need to see your scores. And I was like, huh. Oh, my gosh. Honestly, I've been hearing stuff like that since I was in middle school and high school. And it's just frustrating to hear how much things have not changed. What was your reaction when you heard her tell that story? I was upset. And I think I was mostly upset because I assumed that I would be the last person that that happened to. Like, I had talked to other Black students who were older than me who had gone through experiences. And I was like, oh, I was like, you know, if we if we bring it up with them, like, at some point, like, the program should figure out this isn't appropriate. And just seeing that, like, that was history repeating itself. So then what did you and Skylar do next? So she wasn't entirely sure what to do. So she she reported to the school, which I think for both of us, the first time that like a really bad incident happened, we reported it thinking that the school will do something. We have a anonymous tip line that's primarily for two things. You're supposed to report school safety concerns and you're supposed to report bullying. And so I've used it before to report things. It's just, in my experience, it's not been the most effective way of reporting behavior. And I think that we both had an expectation that there was going to be a process for like, we're going to teach you why what you said was wrong. This is how you could behave more constructively in the future. So I wish there was like some, maybe like a process where they take these words that people say and they really have to like process them down the line. And you can get penalized for cheating on a test. But what about being racist? She didn't necessarily want the kids to get punished. Like suspending them, expelling them, that doesn't achieve any of the growth or like restorative justice that we want. And do you feel like these were 
issues or ideas that were being explored like in your classes? Do you feel like there was an opportunity to talk about some of these things like racism and inclusion? We talked about Supreme Court cases around affirmative action, like talked about like, what does that mean? And I think the problem is just that teachers, like when the conversation starts to get uncomfortable or someone says something, the reaction is like, oh, let's just change the subject. Let's just talk about something else and not like process what that person just Mm -hmm. said or like what that might mean for other students in the classroom. And I think a lot of that's just that at the Mm -hmm. time that I was at the school, from what I know, teachers were not getting any kind of diversity inclusion training. And then um, to add on to that, students certainly weren't either. And so I know in a lot of schools, and this is the case in our school as well, that like their way of talking to us about racism our freshman year was like, we read To Kill a Mockingbird. And I was like, (laughs) okay, great. Now we understand racism. And we watched the movie and like we talked about how like you shouldn't say the N-word. Oh my god. Apparently gosh. that's all we need. I feel like that has been all of our school experiences for like decades and decades that we all come into our like freshman year reading To Kill a Mockingbird, which is in many ways a great book. Harper Lee, great writer, but is not necessarily the end-all be-all of like how to deal with racism in the 21st century and doesn't have a particularly nuanced sense of perspectives on the problems that we're facing. Yeah, for sure. So then what was the solution to that? This kind of lack of robust discussion and opportunity to really like flesh out these important ideas in the classroom. Yeah. And so in trying to think about a solution, I think I knew I was like, this has to be a student-led approach and it has to be students to other students until we can reform the way we teach teachers how to teach, which is going to take a very long time. Same way as it's going to take a very long time to reform like our AP US history curriculum. So I sent a message asking like, is there anybody interested in helping me think about a diversity, equity, and inclusion curriculum for young people? There was a very low probability of me learning about race or anybody else that looked like me at my high school learning about race, which is weird because we were like 60% of the population. Iris was one of the people who was super instrumental early on in helping us develop the curricula. And so I was like, yeah, that's one of the things I'm really like interested in was specifically the education system. There are so many problems and there are so many ways to go about fixing it, right? Do we want to go through the schools? Do we want to go around the schools? So we were like really trying to flesh out what would it look like? What is the best way to go about fixing this like seemingly insurmountable problem? And so we got together and we formed DICE, D-I-C-C-E, which stands for Diversity, Inclusion, Cultural Competency, and Equity. And so our goal was to create a for Gen Z, by Gen Z curriculum that talked about diversity, equity, inclusion in like the most traditional way that we understand it to be. So like how to treat people nicely to like really, really simplify it. But also more importantly, how do we take a different approach, a different lens on the way that we were taught history, especially in K through 12. And so I started with a group of my peers that I had met um, all like online during COVID. It was just a lot of like hour long Zoom calls a couple times a week. So how's everyone doing? Good, Good thanks. Guys. Yeah, I'm here. 
of just throwing things at the wall, making like crazy Google Docs, deleting Google Docs, rewriting curriculum. I paint. And so I feel like it felt kind of like an artist's like frenzy almost of just that we were all in like a deep state of this needs to get done and we need to be the people who do it. And it needs to be done to the best of our ability. So we talk about the history of race in the United States and talk about how we should talk about it. So talking about terminology, talking about intersectionality of people having multiple identities, but also like imagining what a world looks like where there isn't racism and how do we work towards that collectively. And so there's obviously a lot of room to grow, a lot of things that needed to improve, um, but that like the basis of this was very strong and that kids can teach other kids how to talk about race. I'm curious how things evolved, especially during and after last summer, during the protests after George Floyd, and so many of us were having different kinds of conversations or more intense conversations. How did that affect the work that you guys were trying to do? I think that for us, it was a race to try to seize the moment. So it was a bad instance of right place, right time. And so in some ways it felt like if we don't get the curriculum out now, nobody is going to care about it. And so we need to, as much as possible, like, you know, catalyze in the fact that people really care about this right now and people are craving curriculums and information. I would say now with hindsight, we're like, oh, yeah, things didn't change as fast as we thought they were going to. And I'm not sure why we thought they were. And what has been the impact of the curriculum so far? Yeah, so this is, all, this is all a super exciting thing for all of us. We've had a couple dozen students either go through the training that one of our team members have run or that another student who was outside of DICE volunteered to run for their peers. We've done quite a few workshops. So we did a workshop with the Nobel Prize Summit in April, and we also did a workshop with some Stanford faculty as well, talking about institutional racism. And I think the... The biggest part of the impact, the most important part is that it's free and it's accessible and we want people to go and access it whenever they need it and use it however they want to. Do you think it's harder to be a teenager now than to be a teenager decades ago and like, it seems like you all are spending a lot of your free time just teaching other people. I don't know. It feels like just a lot of work to put on a teenager who otherwise should just be, like, living their life. I would say it's not necessarily harder. I think the things that, like, teenagers deal with growing up are more or less the same. But I think it's easier to get involved. And it's just easier to get into these spaces where you can learn more about this work. Yeah, I mean, I guess my question is, like, do you ever wish that you didn't have to do that? That you were like, why do I need to spend all my time trying to educate other people about big issues of historic and social importance and that you shouldn't have to do this? This shouldn't be your job? Yes, and I think that, I will say, though, I think that has more to do with the fact that I am Black and I'm a woman than necessarily being a teenager. And so I know that that's something I've talked to friends about of like, I, you know, I used to want to be a biomedical engineer. And it wasn't until I got more involved in this work that I realized I can't do that. I need to do something that's more directly impacting like these specific areas I feel like I can have a social impact in versus like researching genetics, which is something that I love. But it's like, I don't feel like I can do that 
And I feel like I have an inherent, like, or a stronger responsibility to tackle these social issues because I've gotten involved and because I feel like I have the privilege and the resources to, to address those issues as well. That seems so unfair to me that you can have this other passion for something that's not related to, like, race and social injustice and that you feel like you can't pursue that because you have to spend all your time thinking about things like systemic injustice. And I think that's the way a lot of teenagers who are super involved in activism, I think, feel that way. I think I was asked once, like, if you didn't have to worry about racial injustice, what would you do? And I was like, I don't know. I'd probably move to Spain and, like, bake pies for the rest of my life. Like, I don't I don't know what I would do. But I think there are issues in the world that I feel like I can address. I feel like I should be doing that. And I think more teenagers, I think, are feeling like we have to do something. Because huh. so many things are coming to a like, kind of a tipping point almost. Yeah. Zoe, I have to say, like, if you want to move to Spain and bake some pies, <laughs> I feel like you should do that, at least at some point. It doesn't have to be right now, but... I appreciate that. Hopefully I will get to do that at some point. That was Zoe Jenkins. She's one of the young journalists from YR Media that we're talking to in our series about teens in America. We'll have more stories from the series next week. If you want to check out the curriculum that Zoe made, you can go to dice.org slash curriculum. That's D-I-C-C-E dot org slash curriculum. This piece was produced by Sabi Robinson and Rebecca Martin. It was edited by Robin Amer and Rebecca Martin with additional editing from Maggie Penman, Rena Flores, Renita Jablonski, Krissa Thompson, and Kyra Kyles. Mixing by Ted Muldoon and Sean Carter. Original music by Alejandro Figueroa, Jacob Armenta, and Noah Holt. And we'd like to hear from you. Are you a teenager thinking about the role that race plays in your life, or the parent of a teen who's had to figure out how to talk to your kids about this stuff? Record a voice memo on your phone and email it to postreports at washpost.com. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about. In your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive. And that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans, like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.